Good morning, Hope Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's good to be with you this Lord's Day. As was said earlier, my name is Nick Bratcher, and I am your RUF campus minister at the University of Kentucky. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, I, I serve you. I'm actually like, I'm not technically on staff at Hope, but I serve uh, for Hope, and I actually serve for TCPC and all the other PCA churches uh, across Kentucky and who have called me to do this work. And so if you don't, in a kind of a roundabout way, um, you, if you're a member here, you could like bring me up on charges or something. Um, please don't do that. Um, but based on my sermon here today, maybe you'll decide to do so. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, if you're at all interested in hearing more about RUF and what it does uh, at the University of Kentucky, I'd be happy to talk with you or get coffee sometime. And um, yeah, if you're interested in supporting or want to be on our newsletter even, uh, come find me after the service. Uh, this morning we are in James 3, 13 through 18, and we're talking about godly wisdom. Uh, now, why a one-off sermon on godly wisdom? We're going through Genesis as a church here, uh, but uh, James, I will say, uh, writes a one-off letter about wisdom. Never a bad idea to copy a biblical author. James begins his letter in verse 5 of chapter 1 right up front with this, this word. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now here's the question. Why does James put such a premium on being wise? Right? Why does he start the letter with this admonition to, to ask God uh, to be wise? Why should we care about being wise? Well, it's not just to teach us some philosophy, or a code of ethics to live by, nor is it even to fill our heads with facts or insight. That's not wisdom, right? It's, it, wisdom is more than little, knowing you know, little factoids, even little factoids about God or the Bible. We, we read Psalm 1 earlier, and there, uh, people who spend their time reflecting on God's law, who meditate on it, his character, his desires, they're pictured not as some static island, a fortress to themselves. We aren't supposed to be, you know, brains on sticks, right? We don't just memorize things and therefore we are what we've memorized, right? Instead, the psalmist compares a wise person to a tree whose roots sink deep into God's character and that that relationship produces fruit, not to the benefit of the, of the tree, right? But to those around the tree. Everyone who comes into contact with a person like this is made better for it. It's a dynamic picture of life to be lived, of growing to be done, right? This is wisdom. As one of my seminary professors used to say, wisdom is the skill in the art of godly living. In other words, wisdom books like James are not concerned so much with what you know, that you know God and his goodness and his mercy, man, that's assumed. But instead, these books ask, ask the question, what are you going to do? with what you know about God, right? What are we supposed to do with what we know about God? Well, let's find out what James wants us to do uh, by reading James 3, 13 through 18. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Oh God, I simply pray that uh, you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, it doesn't take long in reading through this passage to get to James asking, what are you going to do with what you know? Right? It's, it's sort of in the first question, isn't it? Are, are you wise? Are you understanding? Then prove it, he says. Right? Do something about it with good works that demonstrate how wise you are. This, now, I, I understand as we read a passage like this, it might feel like it's a lot to ask of us, maybe even demanding of us might even seem a little legalistic. I'd say we're simply dropping in at the wrong point of the letter, but uh, this is pretty much James's deal the whole way through, right? In the previous chapter, James makes the argument that faith without works, without doing good things, is dead. This caused Martin Luther famously to call this letter an epistle of straw. But is it? Uh, when Maddie and I moved to Milwaukee, where we were before here, we uh, bought a house, and <clears throat> at that house was this, like, beautiful concrete patio. We were in the city, but it had, like, uh, we were hemmed in by this gorgeous brick church on our right that, like, towered over our yard and, like, gave us a little shade. And then we had this back, little back uh, patio that was concrete and uh, water drained in and uh, had a sewer system and then overlooked, like, uh, several... Uh, uh, planting boxes, what are those called? Anyways, uh, like little gardens, and it had a chicken coop out back, and like, I was like, this is a little urban oasis right here. Now, there was just one problem, and if you've bought a house, you probably know this uh, by experience. Um, we are moving from an apartment, had zero patio furniture, right? So we had this amazing backyard, and we just assumed, like, we'll move in, and we'll save up, and over time, we'll, like, we'll furnish the backyard. In the meantime, we'll just kind of look longingly at it, you know. Uh, this will be great for us to, you know, stare at. And, uh, but we'll, we'll do it over time, right, is what we, we kept on ourselves. Now, uh, we moved in, and we're, like, checking it out, right? You know how uh, somebody leaves the house, and you're like, oh, what kind of state is it going to be in from when we, like, closed on this thing to when we're moving in? We're going around, we're looking at everything, and we get to the back uh, patio, and I'm, like, going to survey it, and we noticed that uh, the people have, I guess, mistakenly left their like full couch and chairs, uh, coffee table, a whole picnic table, their grill. Everything had been left behind when they had texted us that they were ready to go. I was like, oh, man, did they forget it? So we texted our real estate agent. I was like, hey, did they forget it? Was not included in the listing. And they said, oh, they meant to include it and forgot. So you guys can just have the patio furniture. And I said, we, we, just, we just have it, right? Now, I understand that this breaks down a little bit because like, we paid for it technically in the house, but like, just imagine, you, you, know, you just get this patio furniture free and clear. We're like, I thought we were gonna have to maybe sit on the concrete and, and it, to enjoy it outside, but now we have all this great stuff. Now, what if after all that, Maddie, my wife and I had just gazed longingly out our back window and just said, to ourselves, man, it would be great to be able to use our patio, wouldn't it? Right? Or worse, what if we had had people over on a nice spring or fall day, showed them the backyard and said, it sure would be nice if we could utilize this place. Let's go back inside. 
right? Uh, unfortunately, we're still saving up to furnish the backyard. It'd be amazing if someone just would give us their old stuff, but I guess a guy can dream. You would look at me like I was crazy. You'd be like, you, you do know you have furniture out here, right? It'd make no sense. Well, here's my point. Friends, we've been given something a lot greater than some patio furniture. We have the gospel. We have been given the good news of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, that secures our salvation, our salvation and our place with him forever. God is offering that good news to us this morning, not just as a fact to know, but as a path to walk down, as a patio chair to sit and rest in, to trust. This is why James paints two very stark pictures of the way that we can live our lives. He gives us two paths, the one of wisdom from below, the one of uh, someone who uh, does not utilize their patio furniture, who makes their way in the world, who saves up despite the fact that they have been given this gift uh, and they'll never be able to furnish it, right? And one of wisdom from above, the one of someone who sits and rests and, and utilizes the gift that they've been given in Christ. Now, this isn't an epistle of straw, friends. It's God inviting us into his grace by way of contrast, to not gaze longingly out our back window, but instead to rest in the lavish furniture of the gospel that God has provided in our lives. So let's spend the rest of our time this morning exploring these two paths. What does it look like to, to rest in that furniture or to save up and strive on our own as we attempt to see the beauty of living in godly wisdom? If you're a points person, we're going to look at those two points I said, wisdom from above and wisdom from below. But let's start with the path of those who heed earthly wisdom. Look at me at verses 14 through 16. Look at me at verses 14 through 16. Here James clearly cautions his readers. Earlier in chapter 3, James has been addressing what seems to be a group in the church who were trying to be leaders and teachers, but were constantly speaking in ways that cut other people down. This might be the same group from chapter 2 who are also flattering the wealthy and influential members of the church while the poor went dishonored and unnoticed. Selfishly ambitious is you know, the kind of words James uses here. That's an appropriate description of such people, selfishly ambitious. It's the only time in the New Testament that that word is used, but it gets at the heart of these people. Right? They want power recognition, status, right? Uh, they have selfish ambition. Acceptance in the cool group is their, is their constant striving. They want approval from whoever they deem to be the important ones. And how they get these things is revealing, right? James says that they get it by boasting and in lies. They, they build themselves up. They are their own hype man, right? And they lie, Likely in two different ways, uh, given the context. They lie by flattering those above them, right? Telling people whatever they need to hear in order to get their approval. And they lie by defaming those below them, right? Pushing other people down, cutting them down with their speech. In verse 15, James makes the contrast clear. As opposed to true wisdom from God, those who walk this path, they have totally different priorities, Let's take those in turn. Their wisdom, he says, is earthly. Earthly. They care about meeting their felt needs moment to moment. What is physical? This is all there is. Whatever is in front of them. Uh, defined, it's probably defined best in Philippians 3.19, 
where Paul says that the enemies of the cross of Christ have their minds set on earthly things, right? You're either heavenly minded, you have your mind set on on what can't be seen. You see beyond uh, what's right in front of you, whatever uh, a felt need is moment to moment. Uh, But instead you are looking toward the chief end, as we said, of man. What What is this all for? Uh, the other thing he describes their wisdom to be is it's unspiritual. Unspiritual. This is the, uh, you know, it could, you could also say it's uh, unsoul-like. Uh, this is the adjectival form of the word soul, uh, meaning that it focuses on the inner life of a person. Uh, Ever used in the New Testament is actually in contrast to the word spiritual, except for here. Uh, it, in other words, it ushers not from God, not from his spirit, it's unspiritual, but from the core of man, right? You can be spiritual from God. Uh, we tend to think spiritual is like just non-physical, but we're talking about like not from God's spirit, but from our own. It's unholy spiritual, uh, where human reason and human feelings reign supreme, right? That's what it means to be unspiritual, Demonic is the last thing he calls it. Uh, now, that can be understood as demonic in nature, right? That it's like evil, but more likely, right? Uh, since that's already assumed, it's uh, more likely it's a type of wisdom or behavior that's demonic in origin, right? Where does it come from? And as you know, demons are servants of the devil, this wisdom comes from Satan himself, right? That this in its origin, instead of it either flows from Uh, felt needs, whatever physical things you can see, or it comes from the soul, whatever I really want, whatever my my head and my heart tell me I should have, or it's demonic. It comes from outside of me, but not from God. In other words, the way of the unwise, it caters to the age-old enemy of the Christian and of Jesus. It caters to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's appropriate to ask ourselves uh, this morning, Is this me, right? Do I cater to the pressures of the world and the flesh, the devil? Do you embellish your your accomplishments to impress other people? Do you flatter bosses and social superiors? Do you speak ill of others to make yourself look better? Are you consumed by ambition, looking for power and approval and status wherever you can find it? Uh, The next raise can't come soon enough. you know, the more money, the better, however I can make myself safe. And we can do these things in subtle ways too, right? Good things can become these ultimate things. Paying off a home, right? Getting promotions, posting edgy takes on social media where you own the libs or you like stuck it to those conservative uppities. Whatever, whatever you think it is that you're going to do that makes you important in the eyes of other people, this is that kind of wisdom. Essentially, is your life shaped more by your own desires or the expectations of others than by God's desires and his expectations? I mean, is this you this morning? This is something, uh, you know, in my role, I get the privilege, especially of pressing to the leaders of this church too, uh, both those in formal positions of authority and informal positions of power and influence, you know, men and women alike. In the context of James chapter 3, this is especially written for folks who wield influence in the church. Are these your motivations? Right? Are you on the, are you on the rat race here? It's no surprise that in James uh, 
verse 16, right, of our chapter, he describes his system with leaders like this as one of disorder and vile practice. That word disorder is not just, is not, it does not just mean chaos, uh, right? We tend to think of disorder as things being like not placed well. But when we talk about people, it's been used twice already in this same letter to talk about double-mindedness, right? Chaos is not having your life set on one thing, but many different things. It's an unsettled life. Its target ever changes. Uh, when the end goal is the approval of other people, the means to achieve that end will never, will never be set. It'll be ever shifting. It's no surprise that sin runs rampant in a, in a system like this. When leaders are not concerned with holiness and dying to themselves, a flock will follow suit. Because the system that such leaders create, it will reward those who flatter the right kind of people. Right? Uh, the relational network of a church like this won't be based on who believes the gospel and radically including those people in the margins who are difficult to love. It will quickly devolve into a good old boys club with favorites based on who you know and how well you can, you can contribute to the system, where you went to school, what kind of job you have, who your dad is, how long you've lived in Lexington, right? These things are how you make relationships, uh, as you, I, I'm thinking about even uh, this morning as you guys are thinking about uh, officer nominations, right? Uh, how do you make these kinds of decisions? Well, this is it, right? People who uh, don't look like this, who, who have their hearts set on one thing, because the truth is this morning, if this is you, I want to encourage you, your life will always be shifting, right? Both in your leadership and in uh, your life. Like even if you're not a member of this church, if you leave here this morning and uh, your heart is not set on Christ, your wisdom is limited by whatever you can get from other people, right? Everyone becomes an obstacle in this. The, the, the person at your work who could be your coworker that you're friends with now is your enemy because they're competing for the same position as you, right? Uh, your kids become obstacles to your happiness instead of gifts that you can enjoy. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Uh, everybody becomes obstacles, and our life is ever shifting on what we want to do because that's uh, who we want to impress is shifting as we work up social ladders, corporate ladders, all those things. Now, I will say I'm thankful that from where I sit, right, uh, only having been in Lexington a couple months, I think that God has given this church a community of men and women who are rooted in God's word and his will, but it should serve as a, as a warning to us all the same that this is not an easy thing to do. And it's an e uh, heeding uh, God's wisdom is not an easy thing to do, and it's actually very easy to slip into earthly wisdom. Now, James does not only give us warnings, though, right? He, he does show us a more excellent way. Look at me at verses 13 and 17 through 18. 13 and 17 through 18. For the truly wise, James offers another route. The wise in verse 13 are described as understanding. The only time that word is used in the New Testament, in other first century literature, it refers to like a professional type of knowledge, right? It's one who has understanding, uh, it, you know, becomes an expert in their field, right? If you're, a, if you're here this morning, you have like a master's in mechanical engineering, right? This is who, what you are when it comes to, you know, uh, building machines or, or bridges or something like that, right? Like if you're, if you have this kind of uh, knowledge, if you are this kind of wise then, uh, and understanding, if you have understanding, it means that you have grasped and you become a master 
of something in a field. James, in other words, is asking for experts on God and his ways, right? Who among you is an expert on God and his ways? The truly wise know God in his mercy and goodness, and therefore they walk before him accordingly. It's not surprising then that James expects good works to flow from people who believe that about God. This leading question of verse 13, followed by a demand for evidence, would have been a reproof for those with the sharp tongues and the double-mindedness. But it should be an encouragement to us as the church. We ought to have that kind of wisdom, James says, that always bears the mark of meekness. Right? Meekness or self-subduing gentleness was not a virtue in the ancient world any more than it is today. Right? Meekness does not seek your best life now. Right? It doesn't try to get rid of all your problems and, and make sure nobody's a hindrance to you and give you everything that you want. Right? No, uh, meekness evokes the idea of servitude, of yielding your own power to others and making yourself intentionally weak. It does not manifest all of one's goals. Right? It is how Jesus describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says that he is meek and lowly in heart as he invites sinners to rest by following him. We worship a Savior who laid down his life so that we might live. Our lives have to be shaped by that reality. That's the center of the universe, James claims. And if they are, right, if our lives are shaped by that reality, James continues in verse 17, they will be first and foremost characterized by purity. James chooses that word first. When James described those who heed the wisdom from below, we saw that they were double-minded, right? They, they have mixed motives, right? Out to protect their own, their own position, jealous for their own power, means that they are constantly trying, it depends on who they're trying to impress moment to moment, what kind of person you're going to get. But these person, the people who heed the wisdom from above, they are single-minded. They are pure in heart. The one who aspires to live before the face of God is, is concerned with glorifying God and enjoying him forever. You know what you are getting with someone who seeks wisdom from above. They are consistent. Maybe not in ways you like, but they are consistent. And notice that not all of these virtues are equal. James lists purity first, and then all other virtues follow in equal measure after. Uh, it is only in being completely captured by the work of the Holy Spirit, that one can bear his fruit, right? This is because purity of heart brings forth all the other virtues. Purity of heart is to will one thing, and we are supposed to will what God wills, right? It's worth noting uh, that God is first focused, um, you know, all the other virtues, uh, I'm not going to be able to tackle them this morning. You're like, oh man, if he takes this much time with all the other ones, we're going to be here forever. We're not going to do that. Instead, here's what I'm going to say about all the other ones. It's worth noting even as James lists out a bunch of things for you to do, the first thing that he lists is, is focused on your heart, on its purity. Before he's focused on behavior modification, uh, even while he's calling us to the right behavior, James is not saying, I want you to just do a bunch of things. He's saying, I want you first to be someone who cares singularly about one thing, and it should be God and his goodness. You can't be peaceful, gentle, merciful, loving, correctable people if we are not first caught up mind, body, and spirit with the beauty of God to the point that that beauty overflows in every area of your life. Uh, when 
my wife, Natty, and I were early on in our dating relationship. Uh, we went on a hike together outside Charlottesville. She went to UVA uh, for undergrad. As people would pass us on the trail in the Blue Ridge Mountains, I would always say, you know, I'd pass by, howdy, howdy, howdy. I'd say howdy a lot. At, at one point, Maddie kind of chuckled, and she pointed out that she'd, like, she'd never heard me say howdy before. It's like kind of a weird greeting. Some people around here do it, um, I, I've noticed. But I, I told her that, you know, uh, and this is just offhand, I told her it's you know, kind of my life's dream to be the kind of guy who says howdy to strangers on trails. And uh, Maddie was like, that's a weird dream. I was like, it is a weird dream. Where did that come from? I started thinking about it. I told her that my, my dad used to say it when he'd enter a room, right? And he never seemed to meet a stranger. Just he would say, you know, howdy, you know, it's just his, it was his greeting. He had inside jokes and best friends with people that he'd known for like two minutes, right? My desire to say howdy was simply an external manifestation of a captured heart, I wanted to be my dad, right? I, I wanted to share in that life, so I followed him in it. Question is, do we do the same with Jesus, right? Do you find him beautiful? Do you find him worth following? Do you see him giving himself up for you? And does that compel you towards self, selflessness with others? This is the way of, rise, brother, uh, way of the wise brothers and sisters Right? Getting into the word, praying, putting the beautiful vision of God before your eyes so that it can make your heart pure, that you will one thing, so that you say your howdies. Uh, I, I do want to say, you know, the, the application of every Bible passage is not to read your Bible more, but this is one in particular where if you want purity of heart, right, if you want God more, then you have to get him in front of you more. Right? That is, you have to find him more and more beautiful. The only way to do that is the means of grace. Now, uh, we ought not think of this, you know, just individually either, right? It's, there is a corporate sense to this. As I said earlier, remember that James writes this letter to a church potty that is suffering from poor leadership. It's worth asking, you know, whether your individual life demonstrates a commitment to this wisdom, but it, it's also worth asking if your church does too. Does this church demonstrate this kind of system with these kinds of fruits, peaceful, gentle, merciful, loving, teachable people? When, when someone walks through the doors of Hope Presbyterian Church, is that who they're going to meet? Or to put an even finer point on it, right? Are your leaders modeling these things and teaching them to you? Is wisdom, a, you know, wisdom from above, is that a commitment that you all share? Uh, I, I, again, I would say that you're in good hands, right? But this is another reason why you should probably nominate some elders. Don't put that burden all on one guy, <laughs> right? Get some deacons, get some deaconesses, actually care for your church by picking good leadership who will lead it well, right? Make sure that you're in good hands. This is the one part of Presbyterianism where you get to like do the thing that God has asked you to do, right? If that's the case, right? Uh, and I'll say this too, if, if it's the case that you have good leadership and you nominate good elders, people are, things are going well in this church, uh, when's the last time you came up to one of these leaders in your church and just thank them for doing this? Right? You, cannot, you cannot pray enough, thank them enough for the work that they're doing because James has to write this letter. If it was easy to do these things, James wouldn't have written the letter. Right? It wouldn't have ended up in Scripture. God in his wisdom knows this is, this is the crux, this is the top of the hill, the place that, we, that a church can die on, right? is whether or not we are caring for each other well in this, in this manner. And it is not easy to do. Pray for your leadership. 
tell them that you're thankful. Remind them. Encourage them. Right? Because if you don't, uh, this is what happens. Right? That you can devolve into wisdom from below very quickly. Encourage them in their work. Uh, whereas the wisdom from below, right, whereas it produces double-mindedness and sin, if we are a church that pursues wisdom from above, we will, as God promises in verse 18, we will produce a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for this time where we can open your word and think about what does it mean to be wise? Lord, I pray that if we are here this morning and uh, we feel our hearts pulled in a million directions of different things that we want, uh, where our chief end uh, depends on who we're talking to, depends on what we can get out of each relationship, uh, Lord, I pray that we would see that that will leave us lonely and sad and empty and friendless. Uh, But instead, I pray that we would grasp hold of you and your goodness that we would be willing to die to ourselves so that others might live uh, because you have given us your son. I pray that that would so shape us, that we would be a people who put that vision in front of us often and that that would uh, move us out in love towards the city of Lexington. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.